1: You may feel like time is warped these days, but black holes literally warp time and space. These mass cobbling monsters at the centers of galaxies also bend light, which is what scientists measured recently around a black hole. Now, while that discovery was exciting, a century-old theory had predicted it. Yep. As if from beyond the grave, Einstein continues to be the maestro of physics on the large scale. But on the small scale, where elementary particles rule, there may be some trouble. Unexpected experimental results at a particle accelerator threaten to upend our best description of the basic building blocks of the universe. Are we entering a new era of the most fundamental science of all, physics? I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, how black holes are not forever, the strange behavior of an elementary particle hints at new physics, and an astrophysicist reveals how Einstein's ideas about relativity rocked his world at age 10. This episode, Freaky Physics.
1: It's time to tip our hat once again to Albert Einstein, the one-time patent clerk at the turn of the last century, before Ford's Model T began tooling around our cities, described a radical connection between space and time in a set of equations he called the theory of
2: relativity. We'll find out how a more-than-century-old theory continues to keep physicists busy, but first, its formative role in shaping one boy's future. In a recent memoir, Hakim Oluseyi recalls when he learned that time and space were not fixed, but relative. He was 10 years old, sitting in the stairwell of his apartment building, with a flashlight, reading a volume of the family's World Book Encyclopedia. The volume on his lap covered entries that began with E, and included one that described the radical insights of a 20th century physicist. Hakim Oluseyi reads from his memoir.
0: At the moment he realized time and space were relative, Einstein said, a storm broke loose in my mind. And that's exactly what happened to me. Right there in that hot, dark stairwell, I had my own brainstorm. I'd always known that time could feel like it was moving slower, like in a boring class, or faster, like when Darren and I were playing touch football and an hour went by in a few minutes. Einstein discovered that the actual passage of time could change. He called it time dilation, which means that the faster you travel through space, the slower you travel through time. But it wasn't just time that was relative. In space-time, time time and space could bend, contract, and stretch. I knew it. Part of me had always known that things were not as they appeared.
1: Well, that's truly amazing, Molly, that he could grasp these very subtle ideas at the age of 10. You know, time dilation, what that means is, you know, you and your buddy might have the identical kind of watch, but if your buddy is, you know, walking by you or in a train going by you or in a car, their watch will seem to move slower relative to your watch. has nothing to do with the mechanics of watches. It's just due to relativity. This is all a consequence of the fact that the speed of light is always the same, no matter how fast you're moving. It's always the same. And, uh, you know, that's what propelled Einstein to come up with these theories in the first place.
2: Well, not only did 10-year-old Hakim grasp the implications of Einstein's insight into relativity, but he connected emotionally to it, too. He writes that it provided escape from a difficult and impoverished childhood in New Orleans.
0: I wondered if relativity explained why even though my body was stuck in a crappy apartment across from the Dirty D, my mind could carry me a million miles away from the Ninth Ward, the hoodlums on the corner, mama's sadness, and anger, my own loneliness. My mind was racing so fast, I could hear it whirring my head. I clicked off the flashlight and sat in the dark a moment to try and slow things down. But even in the dark, my thoughts were moving at the speed of light. I clicked the flashlight on and off to see if I could trace the light beam as it traveled to the far wall of the stairwell and bounced back to my eyes. Of course I couldn't. The end of the World Book article said, For more, see Article on Relativity in Volume Q through R. I jumped back into my body and bounded up the stairwell to retrieve it.
1: You could say that the radical implications of Einstein's idea hung on to him and never let go.
0: My name is Hakeem Olusheyev. I am a PhD physicist who does astrophysics, and I am an affiliated professor of physics and astronomy at George Mason University.
1: In his book, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Streets to the Stars, Dr. Oluseyi describes how science saved him by providing a guide star when he shuffled between homes as a boy in Louisiana, Texas, California, and Mississippi. But also how, as an astrophysicist who pioneered new methods for observing the sun, he never lost that thrill of discovering entirely new ways to think about the universe.
2: Well, Hakeem, you know, when we talk about a child having an aptitude for science, we talk about that as though we know what that means. Could you describe what that means without using the word science in it? What sort of questions is a young child asking that then we later come to identify as having a scientific mind?
0: Well, I think the one thing that distinguishes a scientific mind is I think curiosity is spread everywhere, but the application of rigor is not. The idea of I need to know this, I am not going to accept it without proof, right? I need something that lets me verify this information. And so the thing that struck me about Albert Einstein's stuff is that immediately, you know, he put forward these thought experiments so I could verify it on my own. And that's exactly what I set out to do. I wanted to do relatively experiments. <laughs> so I think that experimenting, that doing aspect is what, you know, is one thing to read and think and watch. But when you start doing, I think now you're being inquisitive in a different way. Right? It's more than just I have a question. It's also learning from observing, learning from doing, as well as trying to answer questions by reproducing what you've read somewhere else, which is what I did.
2: Let's come back. Let's come back to Albert Einstein, because, of course, this is such a lovely description in your memoir of how you were introduced to Einstein. So your mom, Elaine Plummer, bought you a set of encyclopedias. And do you remember how you felt when they came into the house?
0: Well, you know, it was one of those things of, oh, nice books. Oh, they're encyclopedias. I guess they're not that interesting after all. (laughs)
2: <laughs> but they, they turned out to be very interesting. You read them yes. in order, and of course you came to Albert yeah. Einstein, and that you write that you almost didn't read the passage about him because, and I'll, I'll quote, you'll, you'll recognize your own words here, ordinarily you'd speed read through a biographical entry about some white dude born in Germany a hundred years ago. What changed your mind? Why'd you decide to read about him?
0: He looks so weird. Right he, he you know, and I was like, "Yo, who's this guy? He looks pretty interesting, he looks like we could, he could be my pal. <laughs> I like weird, he looks weird, maybe there's something interesting about this guy.
2: you also write that you identified with Einstein because he was he was an outlier, and you felt like you were an outlier too in in many ways still do.
0: you still do, oh, of course I do, yeah, in the scientific community, especially
2: you you said that you um connected to his ideas about general relativity and space time, and I'm I really was astounded that at 10 years old, you felt like you had an understanding of these four dimensions of space. What did you read about when you were 10 and what did you connect with and understand intuitively?
0: Right. So there's two things. There's the qualitative thoughts about it. And then there's the mathematics. So Well, upon reading Einstein's thought experiments, I got the qualitative understanding pretty quickly. I was really good like that. You know, I get things, I catch on to logic really fast.
2: What was the qualitative statement?
0: So so one statement was the statement of time dilation, for example, his thought experiment on using a, a light as a clock inside of a train and how a person on the train versus someone outside while the train is moving at a constant speed would see time traveling at a different rates, right? But once I understood that, okay, any time or any distance, anything you measure with a ruler or a clock will not be the same for all observers. Right. But then, you know, at the time it was called an invariant interval. Right. The space time interval. And so I taught myself how to understand the space time interval as well. So I taught myself all this math. I studied it. You know, I didn't learn it instantly. It took me a while. Right. And then I created a science fair experiment about it. Didn't know anything about science fairs. These professors came to my school. My school was was all black school in Mississippi, mile and a half down the road from the private all white school. And uh, they were doing outreach. They came to our school, told us science fairs exist. And you know, I was like, OK, I'll program all the effects of relativity. And I end up winning first place in the state science fair.
2: <laughs> well, I want to come back to that moment when you were first at age 10, um, trying to get your head around space time. I mean, yeah. I try to get my head around. I find it, it's very difficult. I, I feel like there are moments when I catch a glimpse and I have an understanding, and then it just goes away. Could you give us a definition of what space-time is?
0: Well, what Albert Einstein showed us is that when we move, we don't move through space alone. We move through time and space simultaneously. And when we're looking at making measurements of time and space. How we're moving relative to what we're measuring will determine what we measure.
2: Now, when you were reading this, and you were understanding this intuitively, and I know that then you went out with a, a skateboard and you try an experiment of space-time, can you just tell us what that experiment was?
0: So an Albert Einstein thought experiment, he compared someone sitting on a train moving at a constant speed. And for that person, their experience would be just like they're sitting stationary in a chair. So if you throw something straight up and straight down to you, it appears to go straight up and straight down. But to someone standing out of the side of the train where you throw it up, you're in one location. But by the time you catch it, you're somewhere else. So whereas a person on the train see it go straight up, straight down, a person outside will see it execute a triangle. Right now, I did that on the skateboard. I'm like, let me skateboard really fast and throw up a rock. Right. And so we sang the song in order to time it since we didn't have stopwatches. Um, And so what happens is whether I was standing still or moving on my skateboard, the time it took it to go straight up and straight down was identical. All right. Now, here's where I was like, what did I do wrong? Right. And I realized, oh, the rock was actually going faster when I was moving. So it went a longer distance faster But because light always moves at the same speed and can't go faster, if it goes a greater distance in in the same amount of time, then time must be traveling differently for the two observers is sort of the idea here. So I was like, oh, if my rock was light, I would have shown time dilation. Yay.
2: Well, Hakim, you're giving us an insight into what your mind your just incredible fertile mind at age 10. And your childhood um, was really challenging. I mean, that's an uh, that's an understatement. Um, you had a peripatetic life, you moved from city to city. As a result, you said that you were living by your wits and your fists. Can you just describe what that meant?
0: I had dozens upon dozens upon dozens of fights. You know, one thing I talk about is, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, in the book, we use the word poverty and I've worked in a developing world in the last 20 years. And so I, I I change it to say American poor. But the biggest poverty, one of the effects is poverty of dignity. And a lot of young men get their uh, self-fulfillment out of being tough guys, Right. So when you're a 12-year-old kid, you got to fight the 15-year-old kid. So I was like, I was fighting nonstop till about the time I got to high school, at which point it slowed down. But then it took on another tenor, right? And it became very dangerous because it wasn't so much fist fights as it was weapons and confrontations.
2: And in that case, were your wits and your ability to think, was it an asset or was it something you had to dissemble, you had to hide?
0: So it, it's really interesting because in... The black communities where I lived in, you know, I lived in completely segregated communities. Everyone was really supportive of my academic performance. Right. And and the example I give people for them to understand is I think people have an expectation that people beat you up if you're academically oriented. You know, but if you remember Showtime at the Apollo. Right. And they would have the children's amateur night, and Kiki Shepard would ask the child, what's your favorite subject in school? And if the kid said anything like math or science, the audience lost their mind, right? They were like, yeah, because they so support that. So everybody was really supporting in Mississippi, was supportive of my nerdiness. But at the same time, they were like, this dude is weird.
2: You also talk about the role of mentors, and there are a few key people. Everyone from your friend Darren Brown, who played chess with you, to a high school teacher Mr. Barber, Mr. Reeves, Dr. Teal, and then, of course, Art Walker yes. at Stanford. Cynthia
0: McIntyre, yeah, Art Walker, my first research supervisor, yeah.
2: Describe in what way teachers um, were your lifeline, and that's the word that you use.
0: Well, I'll tell you one. One was my Navy recruiter. My Navy recruiter came in, and he was just believed in me so much. And he was like, man, I'm going to get you into the Naval Academy. He did not. We, we missed a deadline. But what he did do, he got me into a program. I tested to be a nuke in the Navy. Successfully, then I got into this program that took people in from places like my, with my background, without a strong academic education. And one thing they did is they took you from arithmetic through calculus in one year. There were two math classes, the regular class and the remedial class. I was in a remedial class, okay? But had I not learned algebra in the Navy, there is no way I would have been successful when I got to Tougaloo College. So thank you, Senior Chief Gage.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, finally at Stanford, you you mentioned, and I mentioned Art Walker, um, the solar physicist that you met at Stanford University, where you got your PhD and together you worked on a, a telescope to help return images of the sun. And I wonder if the images of the sun also revealed anything about Einstein's physics. We'll tie it back together. We'll bring it around here.
0: So I realized, you know, certain things that did not happen and do not happen in education. So let me tell you one thing that does happen. And that is this question. What is matter made of? You ask that of anybody and they'll say something that's correct, like atoms or molecules, right? But if they're super highly educated, they start talking about quarks and fields. But anyway, ask them this next question and they're, they're gonna say the sun. And that is, where does light come from? Right. And I found that to be a profound question because I was studying how to interpret the light that comes from stars to figure out what the matter is doing. And so the answer that I use is matter makes it. That's where light comes from. And when matter makes light, the signature of what the matter is and what the matter is doing is encoded in the light. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Because we can have light without having the sun. I think that's one of the points. Um, He was in a dark room every day. Yeah, a firefly uh, makes light.
0: A flame. So when they say the sun, I was like, well, there's light in this room, but there's no sun. They'll say energy. And I'll say light possesses energy. But, you know, like there are environments around uh, neutron stars and black holes where you can get light created by fields. But for the most part, matter makes light. Right. And that whole idea of understanding how to read light is so critical for everything.
2: Hakim Olushei, thank you so much for talking to us. I hope we can have you back on the show sometime.
0: Absolutely. Anytime. Hakim
1: Oluseyi is a cosmologist and an affiliate professor of physics and astronomy at George Mason University. He's the author of A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Streets to the Stars.
2: You know, Seth, Dr. Oluseyi mentions the role that experimentation has played in science and the role that it has played in Einstein's theories. And this brings us to the famous light experiment that he describes.
1: Yes. What gave the impetus to Einstein to think about these things was an experiment conducted in the 1890s. It's known as the Michelson-Morley experiment uh, for the two American physicists who did it. You know, they measured the speed of light under various conditions, and they found that the speed of light was always the same. Now, that may seem trivial, but it's not. You know, you, you take a flashlight and you do what... (laughs) what Hakeem did here, and you aim it at something far away, and you measure how long it takes to get there, and you get the speed of light. But if you were to do that in a speeding car, you would think that the light beam would be moving a little faster because there's the speed of light plus the speed of the car. But it isn't. That was the big discovery, and that's what led Einstein to think about uh, trams and light beams and the special theory of relativity. (laughs)
2: Well, Dr. Olusay's observation that understanding light is critical for understanding everything is certainly the case in our study of black holes. Einstein had a theory. (laughs) You're getting the idea that he had lots of theories. But he had one about how black holes might behave. And physicists have been looking for cracks in the theory ever since. The most recent place they looked was at a black hole 59 million light years away.
1: How black holes bend light and how they might not be forever. Next, it's Freaky Physics on Big Picture Science. Black holes are showstoppers. They're also, as we'll hear, light benders. Their mystery and seeming malevolence is the ultimate kitchen sink, with their unstoppable gravity, have undeniable appeal. Well, their strange behavior is predicted by another Albert Einstein theory, that of general relativity, also known as his theory of gravity.
2: When you say the ultimate kitchen sink, you mean because everything collects in it?
1: Well, everything could collect in it. It has room. It has (laughs) bottomless room.
2: Well, in the 17th century, Isaac Newton described gravity as a force. For example, that which pulls an apple to the ground. But Albert Einstein had a different idea. He said that gravity was really caused by the geometry of space-time. And a metaphor that physicists find imprecise but is actually quite useful in thinking about this is that of a suspended bedsheet distorted by a bowling ball at its center. Now, imagine that Earth
3: is that bowling ball. So let's say I'm in orbit around the Earth, like the International Space Station. What the International Space Station is really doing is it's falling along a natural curve in space, namely a circular one, carved by the presence of the Earth. So in Einstein's theory of gravitation, masses cause curves in space and time, warps in space and time. And how you experience them is dictated by the path you take in that space-time.
1: One of the most fundamental predictions of general relativity is that mass can bend light. And and think about that. If you have a 10-ton truck parked on your street, would you ever imagine that it would somehow change your view of things down the block? What does your view of things have to do with light bending. Well, your view of things has to do with the light that's reaching you from, I don't know, that building behind the truck. But the truck is bending those light beams coming from the building in such a way as to distort the picture. So you might be able to see a little bit behind the truck. Now, of course, a truck doesn't have enough mass to make much of a difference here, but a black hole does. Now, a black hole is, you know, in size, it's very, very small, essentially infinitely small. But its mass can be, well, I mean, billions of suns in mass, that's a lot of mass, and it will warp any light that gets near to it.
2: How is it that a black hole can be small and yet be so massive?
1: Well, how do you make a black hole? I don't know if you made any recently, Molly, but, you know, you just have a whole bunch of mass that collapses in on itself because its gravity is so strong, it starts pulling everything in. Now, you normally don't see that, but if you had a big enough star that died, ran out of fuel, all the gravity in that star would cause it to collapse, not just to, you know, a small size, or an even smaller size, or an even microscopic size, but to an infinitely small size, and then it's a black hole. Okay, so, you know, a black hole, it's a heavy thing, uh, and it will warp all the light that passes near to it. Now, that helped Stanford scientists recently see light coming from the backside of a black hole, which Einstein said they should. Now here's what the physicists were doing. They were measuring X-rays coming from the direction of a black hole, a very distant black hole. Now, after all, X-rays are really just another form of light, light with very short wavelength. Okay, the X-rays were being produced because matter was falling into the black hole.
2: Why would X-rays be produced because the black hole was absorbing this matter?
1: Yeah, well, it was, you know, maybe ripping apart a star or something like that, but before that matter actually sinks into the maw of the black hole, it's spinning around the black hole. It's going around, so you heat up that gas you heat it up so high to millions of degrees and then it makes x-rays that's how you make x-rays now you might expect that there would be x-rays produced not just on the side of the black hole you could see but on the side of the black hole you know behind the black hole right that you couldn't see but Einstein predicted that the intense gravitational field of the black hole would bend that light those x-rays causing them to
2: come around the black hole and be seen by us like that truck bending the light of the objects around it, only you said that the truck isn't massive enough to really make much difference, so it can't really bend light.
1: Yeah, well, it it bends light, but you'd have a hard time measuring that bend, it's so tiny. But here you got a big black hole and, you know, then it bends things enough for you to measure it. So these researchers saw x-rays coming from the backside of the black hole. It was the first direct observation of light from behind a black hole. Again, that's a scenario predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity, but it hadn't been confirmed until now. Score Einstein. But there is something that even he wouldn't have predicted about black holes.
2: That discovery would be left to Stephen Hawking. Now, we've been talking about the weird events around a black hole, but what if you get closer to the edge of a black hole, what's called the event horizon? Now, we need to put on our quantum mechanics hats for that.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yes, those are hats that are sometimes there and sometimes not.
2: <laughs> Particles are radiating from the edge of that black hole, and the discovery of Hawking radiation changed our understanding of black holes.
3: I'm Jan Levin, and I'm a theoretical astrophysicist at Barnard College of Columbia University, and I'm also director of sciences at Pioneer Works. Hawking radiation was really spectacular discovery because nobody saw it coming. Nobody anticipated it. The idea is really that if you just look at pure gravity, no particles in the universe, just pure gravity, then a black hole creates an event horizon, which is just a region beyond which not even light can escape. and um, And this event horizon is very strict so that the black hole becomes completely screened and separate from the rest of the universe in the sense that nothing that falls in will ever come out again. And uh, that makes it seem as though the black hole couldn't possibly radiate, because when you radiate, you're emitting stuff, you're emitting particles. And what Hawking realized is that when you add Quantum mechanics, when you start to add the deep fundamental nature, quantum nature of matter, that in fact there is this very subtle process by which the black hole can actually get smaller and emit particles.
1: So, what you're saying is that unlike diamonds, black holes are not forever.
3: Yeah, well, we thought they were forever, exactly, and that they could only get bigger. That's a one way street. Black holes can only grow. And what Hawking realized is that over a very, very long time scale, much, much, much longer than the age of the current universe, um, a large black hole, a black hole the size of a star, will eventually not only evaporate but explode in the final stages together. So the black hole has a kind of temperature at which it is evaporating. And it's cooler the bigger the black hole. And it's hotter, the smaller the black hole. So right now, all the black holes we know of in the universe are too cold to possibly notice that they're evaporating. It's only after a very, very, very long time in the far future that they'll be small enough that the temperature will be hot enough that we would um, imagine it being detectable. But by then, presumably, we'll be long gone.
1: Maybe you could explain how they do evaporate because, of course, it's not in the way that a puddle of water evaporates. How does a black hole, if if nothing can escape from a black hole, how yeah. can it get smaller and, and go away?
3: It's actually a really gorgeous realization. So right outside the event horizon, let's suppose space is completely empty. There's no actual matter in the universe. In quantum mechanics, you can't ever really say that there's nothing there. If you've ever heard of the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, it's the idea that you cannot precisely pinpoint the location of a particle and its energy or momentum. And that very subtle idea leads to the possibility that if you can't precisely pinpoint if something's there, you can't actually say it's not there either. And so there's a literally a quantum limit to what nothing means. Nothing doesn't mean that there's never particles there. It just means that they're kind of popping in and out, frothing in this quantum fluctuations. So nothing is actually this very subtle um possibility of things kind of existing and then disappearing again. And what Hawking realized is if two particles come out of the vacuum, one of them can be stolen by the black hole. And then the other one can't go back to being nothing again. It's like you've ruined it. One of the analogies I like to give is to say, imagine empty space has the color green. And when two particles come from empty space, they can be a blue particle and a yellow particle because together they make green. But once the blue particle gets stolen by the black hole, the yellow one can't go back to the vacuum again. And it actually escapes and travels far away. And so if you were looking from far away, you would receive this yellow particle. And you would say, that looks like it came from the black hole. But in fact, it comes from right outside the black hole.
1: Okay, so things don't actually have to escape from a black hole. It's it's just there to suck in, I don't know, your twin brother or something, and the other brother can escape.
3: That's right. But the weird thing is, because of the odd nature of space and time, when the black hole absorbs the partner particle, it can actually make it lighter. And that is just a very strange peculiarity of what happens when you cross the event horizon of space and time switching places. And so the black hole actually gets a little bit lighter in this process, not heavier. And that's really odd. And that is, was it was so odd that you would have thought it was wrong. And while Hawking's discovery of Hawking radiation has incited a lot of controversy. None of it is about the uh, mechanism itself. Everyone believes that, yes, in fact, this is how black holes would evaporate. That's not controversial.
1: Well, let me ask you about another strange behavior, and perhaps it's related to this uh, uh, black hole radiation (laughs) problem, and that is what's called the information paradox. And uh, I, I guess that's not a reference to how Poor my local paper has become. The uh, black hole information paradox, what might that be?
3: Well, Hawking, when he wrote this paper, he knew that he had really begun a kind of uh, a revolution of sorts because the story doesn't end there. He knew that it meant something really profound, and that is because the black hole evaporation in some sense never involves anything from the inside coming out you would have, let's say, a black hole that you made with a bunch of matter, and that matter carries with it quantum information about that matter. And um, and yet this black hole is getting lighter and lighter without ever revealing that information that it's kept trapped behind the event horizon through this subtle process. And so it's as though you've yanked the curtain up when the black hole is gone and explodes. And all of that information trapped in the matter has just disappeared. It never made it out of the black hole. And so the argument became... Well, if the Hawking radiation carries no information, then there's something really pathological about the universe because all of our laws of physics tell us this kind of information cannot be lost. It cannot be destroyed. It might be very hard to reconstruct. If I take your local newspaper and I burn it up in flames, it's going to be very, very hard for me to reconstruct the information that was in the paper, but it's technically possible. The information's not lost. It's just scattered. In this example, it is fundamentally lost. And the only single example that had ever been presented in the history of physics where the information would be lost. And so quantum theorists started to argue with the relativists, the ones on the side of event horizons and black holes, about whether or not information really leaked out and how did it happen. And so this has been going on now for more than 30 years, that the debates have been going back and forth about whether or not it's acceptable to lose the information or somehow it gets out.
1: So that that information has not come to light at least on the blackboards of the theoreticians. No. <laughs> Let me ask you something else. Uh and and that is what was so appealing about black holes. They just seem like a pathology in the cosmos. Just You know, something that can go wrong if you have a big star and it dies or something like that.
3: Yeah, so black holes are profoundly interesting in the sense that they're unlike any other object you can imagine in the universe. Not just discussing the peculiarities, but in the following sense that I can tell the difference between one chair and another chair. They're not identical in any sense. One star and another star, a person and another person. Black holes of a certain mass and spin are absolutely indistinguishably identical to every other black hole with that mass and spin. And that is a very profound statement. It makes them like they're fundamental particles, fundamental gravitational particles, as though there's something about them that is deeper in the laws of physics than other things that we're used to. And that sense of black hole is not a composite of other things. It is literally an empty region, a place in space time. It is empty as far as you are concerned. Whatever that stuff was that made the black hole in the first place is long gone. And you can't tell if it was made of Encyclopedia Britannica's or Tesla's or if it was made of dark matter. You actually can never know that information. and so. People think you can make black holes at accelerators, that you can make black holes, little tiny ones in the early universe because there's something about them that's fundamental. And I can't make little chairs in accelerators in the early universe, or I can't make little stars, but I could make little black holes. And so black holes become a terrain and a very special terrain on which to play out the laws of physics, to figure out what's next, what's deeper, what's deeper than gravity, what's deeper than quantum mechanics. And so that's really the beauty. They offer us that playground. Jan Eleven,
1: thanks so very much for speaking with us.
3: Thank you so much. Great to be on the show.
2: Shanna Levin is a theoretical astrophysicist at Barnard College of Columbia University, and she is the director of sciences at Pioneer Works. (laughs) Okay, Seth, so to get our head around the conversation that you had with Dr. Levin, if we understand this right, would all the matter in the universe eventually disappear if black holes evaporate?
1: Well, that's right, because over the really long time scale, I'm not talking centuries here or millennia or eons or anything like that, but talking about, you know, really long time scales, everything falls into black holes. All those stars, which will have burned out by then, in our galaxy, they just collapse into a big black hole in the center. So all you have left in the universe essentially is black holes. But then it turns out, because of this Hawking radiation, the black holes eventually all go away.
2: So everything falls into the black holes the way that, at your house, everything falls into your kitchen sink, apparently. That's what we've learned from this. (laughs) That would make cleaning up easier. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. well. (laughs) Okay, and so the black holes suck it all in or or draw it all in, and then the black holes themselves evaporate, and then there's nothing? What's left in the universe?
1: Well, there's, you know, these little particles that were produced when the black holes evaporated, of course, but everything is very cold. It's obviously very dark. I mean, the universe keeps expanding, but nothing ever happens again. Kind of now, do boring. We,
2: do we know this to be true, though? Has it happened? or is this? <laughs> I mean, if it's a cyclic universe, maybe it's already happened, but well, is this yeah. what is the forecast for the this universe? This is the forecast. Yes. Now, mind you, you
1: can plan to stick around until it does happen. Uh, the time scale is about 10 to the hundredth
2: years. That's a one followed by a hundred zeros. That's a long wait. I like that you suggest you just have to plan to stick around. <laughs> yes. well, I don't know what that plan would look like.
1: Well, you should embrace it.
2: But this is a theory. Like Einstein's theories and Hawking's theories, this is a theory that this is what happens to the universe, the ultimate fate of the universe. Can we prove it, though?
1: Well, I think the only thing you can do in the short term is to find a small black hole because small black holes will evaporate, you know, on short timescales. And just as they're going out, they explode, right? So if you could find some exploding black holes, that would at least prove that part of the theory. That would prove that Stephen Hawking was right.
2: But you said that all black holes are small. So you mean really small black holes?
1: Yeah. No, <laughs> in size they are. But this would be a matter of mass. If you, if you could take, for example, Mount Everest and turn it into a black hole, that's what I call a small black hole.
2: That's not a plan that someone has... No,
1: but it may have happened shortly after the Big Bang or during the Big Bang that a lot of these very small black holes were made.
2: Well, just when you felt comfortable with things being relative in Einstein's world, turns out that it has limits. His physics describes the behavior of things on the large scale — planets and galaxies, even trucks — but we see the possibility of trouble with physics on the very small scale. And Einstein's theories don't help us understand how things behave at that scale. We have quantum mechanics for that.
1: And now the unexpected behavior of a cousin of the electron, called a muon, may be showing us a crack in one of physics' most reliable models.
2: This episode is Freaky Physics on Big Picture Science.
1: It wasn't all that long ago that we thought that all matter was made up of just three building blocks, protons, neutrons, and electrons. But as physicists built larger and larger particle accelerators, they found out that the recipe book for matter was not quite so simple.
2: We now know of 57 different elementary particles, a whole particle zoo. But just as a zoo is organized into fish, reptiles, mammals, primates, and the cotton candy stand, so too do scientists organize these different particles into various categories. It's called the standard model.
1: In much the way that the zoo organizes animals but doesn't actually explain how evolution works, so too the standard model allows us to categorize elementary particles, but it doesn't explain why these 57 varieties exist. But still, it's the best tool we have for understanding the basic building blocks of the universe.
2: But the best may not be good enough, because the results of a recent experiment may upend the standard model of physics. Remember that almost every time we found a theory that was slightly wrong, like Newtonian physics for instance, it's opened a door to a better, more complete theory. The troublemaker this time is an elementary particle called the muon.
4: The muon is components of of cosmic rays which are hitting us all the time.
2: And by the way, Einstein's theory of relativity comes to our aid once again, this time in helping us to measure the
4: muon. Cosmic ray muons which are hitting us are traveling close to the speed of light, and so their internal clocks go slower due to relativity, and so they actually live longer.
1: Saying they stick around longer is all relative, of course. If they weren't moving so fast, they'd disappear in about two millionths of a second, zip But the fact that they stick around a little longer, at least from our point of view, helps us to measure their properties. Otherwise, it would be very difficult. The measurements seem to suggest that the muons are being weird. They don't seem to obey the predictions of the standard model.
2: Now you don't have to wait for a shower of muons from cosmic rays, you can create your own. University of Manchester physicist Mark Lancaster and his team created muons at the Fermilab particle accelerator, a large collider just outside Chicago.
4: So what we do there is we accelerate protons and we hit them into a target, which is basically also just containing protons. And then they will produce these subatomic particles called pions, and these pions, which contain quarks, will decay to muons.
2: Dr. Lancaster has recently helped run the muon g-2 experiment at Fermilab, and the results were not what physicists expected.
1: According to the standard model, muons should have a certain amount of spin. But when the physicists measured that spin by sending the muons through a magnetic field, they seemed to get an unexpected answer, which may put the standard model of physics in jeopardy. And by the way, it's unlikely that the findings of this experiment were simply an
4: error. Well, at the moment, yeah, the probability of it being a, an experimental error is one in 40,000 or so. It's quite, it's quite a small probability but I've been involved in physics long enough to see unexpected things disappear. And I, I'm, somewhat, I'm always slightly cynical when you see something and it's, you think that it's maybe too good to be true. The cynic in me goes, well, let's wait, let's take a little bit more data and make sure that we can move it beyond the bounds of probability of being a fluke.
1: Well, okay, but aside from saying that, uh, you know, our expectations for muons were maybe wrong, sounds like they were, what is the implication of this experimental result? I mean, why did physicists stomp and shout when it uh, was confirmed with you know, other experiments? I believe that two different experiments have shown this same behavior that doesn't seem to be quite right.
4: The excitement is really because the current theory that we have to describe all these fundamental particles is actually manifestly not very good because it doesn't explain a whole host of things that that were, that were are self-evident in the respect, for instance, that we know that galaxies are rotating quicker than they should be, and we believe that's due to dark matter existing. We also know that the Big Bang should have created matter and antimatter in equal amounts at the start of the universe, but in three minutes, all the antimatter basically disappeared. And we don't really know the physics which is responsible for producing dark matter or getting rid of all the antimatter. So what we need to explain those phenomena is some new types of particles or new types of interaction. And this may be a signal that there is an additional interaction out there because it's causing the muon to behave in a slightly strange way. So that's why people are getting excited because perhaps it's the first hint of us seeing new particles or new interactions. Okay, so well, the standard model, as I understand it, it's kind of a classification scheme,
1: but there's no real theory underlying it. It's just a, a recognition that there are patterns in the properties of elementary particles. Is that right? I mean, is, is that a fair
4: description? Yes. In some ways, like all theories, it's largely rooted in experimental observations. The Standard Model has been amazingly successful in that regard in describing thousands of pieces of experimental data. Like I say, of course, it does have these shortcomings in not describing dark matter or the disappearance of antimatter, but I don't really want to uh, slag it off in any real way. I mean, it is a remarkable theory which has evolved over decades and is mathematically extremely elegant and beautiful, but it just has some pieces missing.
1: Well, if I can kind of summarize what you just said there, the slight irregularities in the properties of the muon, well, irregularities, they're they're not coming up the way you figured they should come up. That sounds to me like uh, when they discovered that the, you know, the orbit of or the motions of Mercury, the planet Mercury long ago weren't j- exactly right according to Newtonian physics, and that was a clue that Newtonian physics for all its elegance, wasn't right in that something different was needed, and in, in particular, relativity. So this is kind of a, a clue that, yeah, you know, the standard model works, but it doesn't always work. And there's this, is it going to help you find out what's yeah. wrong here?
4: No, that's exactly right. That's an extremely good analogy of taking the small deviations in Mercury's orbit to point the direction that Newtonian mechanics wasn't correct and we needed general relativity. And it could be that the small things, the deviations that we're seeing in the properties of the muon are exactly the same. They're showing the small deficiencies in the standard model and a need to invoke a better model, a better theory, which has new interactions and new particles. Yes, exactly like that.
1: So, Mark, I take it you shuttle back and forth from uh, England to Chicago uh, to run those experiments at Fermilab. What's it like to run an experiment at Fermilab? Is it, you know, anything like what you see in the movies of a scientist doing?
4: A, a little bit, yeah. There's, there's lots of people huddled around screens in different rooms. And the amazing thing is is that lots of different bits of equipment all has to work together at the same time. The accelerator has to work in. When we first start taking data, we turn on all our detectors and they turn the accelerator on. And it is that there are a couple of people pressing buttons going, go, go, go. And then you wait and you think, oh, is it working? Is it not working? So there's always a nervous thing when you go, is the beam coming around? Are our detectors working? But eventually that gets ironed out uh, at the start of the experiment. And then we try and run uh, 24-7 you know, for about nine months of the year. and we hope to run as smooth as possible. So there's original, originally there's chaos and excitement of does this work? Is it all going? And then you try and just sit back and run it more like a production line where you do just press go and you sit there and you come back three months later and nothing has gone wrong. Of course that never happens, but.
1: <laughs> okay. So uh, what what's going to happen next? Where do we go from here? I mean, uh, I suppose the theoreticians will be busy trying to trying to accommodate the muon's idiosyncratic behavior. What about the experimental end of this?
4: Yeah, absolutely. The, the theoretical physicists are extremely busy. They have quite furtive imaginations. <laughs> and so they they're coming up with a whole host of explanations uh, all the time. Uh, experimentally, of course, we we need we need more data. We need about a, we need to analyze more data. We ought, that data already exists. And we're analysing it, but it's a quite a slow process analysing this data because it's billions and billions of interactions. But yes, we hopefully in the in the timescale of the next uh, 18 months or so, we will have analysed this data, and then we should know for sure whether these properties that we've seen are really truly anomalous and are showing the the new physics that everybody's has been looking for for many years.
1: Yes. Yes. The assumption is that nature is somehow elegant that you don't need more than one theory, that one theory should be able to explain all things and it ought to be something you can write down on a single sheet of paper or something like that?
4: Yeah, you would hope so. I mean, that's that's a bit of a bias, I think, that we're always looking for beautiful symmetries and beautifully elegant theories. I mean, I think we were spoiled a bit by, predecessors, Einstein and Maxwell and Faraday and people like that, who managed to distill things down to beautiful, simple concepts. Life may not be like that, of course, right? Biology certainly isn't like that. We're hoping physics is because, well, certainly my mathematics is not brilliant. And so I, be- I prefer it not to be as endlessly complicated.
1: Mark Lancaster, thank you so very much for speaking with us.
4: You're welcome, Sir. Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Mark Lancaster is a professor of physics at the University of Manchester. Well, when we look at the big picture here, and there's very little that's as big as the cosmos, Seth, the question that we posed at the top of the show was, are we entering into a new era of physics, the most fundamental science? What is your conclusion?
1: Well, of course, it's still tentative. As Mark Lancaster said, there could be an error in the experiment. But if this muon result holds up, yeah, this tiny little crack, something just slightly wrong, is the way all new theories get started. They find some experimental result that
2: just doesn't agree with the theory. How does the strange behavior of the muon suggest that there might be new physics? And how would that help us understand, as he said, the the questions that we have about dark matter, what it is, and why at the beginning of the universe There were not equal amounts of matter and antimatter.
1: One explanation for this result, if it holds up, is that there's another particle out there, a big particle, and that could account for dark matter. Maybe that is the dark matter. Why can't we observe it?
2: How do we not know what this
1: particle is? Well, it's not always easy to observe elementary particles. Think, (laughs) Think of the Higgs boson. You had to build a $5 billion machine that extends over a dozen miles and more, right? to find it. So they're not always easy to find. Physics is always a refinement of the physics that came before. And there, there are a lot of things we don't understand about the universe still. And so when you open another door, you understand a little bit more. Einstein had a better theory than Newton. It explained more things. And maybe, you know, whatever theory comes next, whether it's string theory or something else, will be an improvement on what we already have, which is relativity and quantum mechanics.
2: Well we don't consider the talents relative when it comes to senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. They help make big picture science possible. I am executive producer of the show, Molly Bentley.
1: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Scholsky David and Sammy David to NASA and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that seeks to find life elsewhere in this big physical universe. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners as well as our Patreon supporters.
2: This episode of Big Picture Science is called Freaky Physics.